Darkness is one of the most terrifying things, and it seems like as a kid, that is kind of the shared experience. Everyone has the same thought, you know, that all kids are afraid of the dark, that they are wanting to have a nightlight, right? We've all grown up with the nightlight, and there's the classic description or the classic scene where the kids keep coming out and they want to have the door cracked open and they want to have all these different lights on. And uh, there, there's a number of, of things. And, and you know, we can all kind of share that experience because at one time it's been, it's been uh, you or me in that spot. We were that kid who were afraid of the dark and stumbled out to try to get the door to crack open. And then we, you know, accidentally stumbled upon our parents eating ice cream and watching TV. That's, you know, the stuff we didn't get to do. We didn't get to enjoy or have. Uh, And even as you grow, even as you uh, mature in age, there will be times at night when you're walking to uh, your car in a dark parking lot or out in the woods. You got to go out to the garage or down into the basement, got to go to the shed and there's some sort of this creeping feeling in your mind, like, I've got to walk faster, got to walk faster, got to move quicker, looking around, and all of a sudden you're like paranoid. And there's a sense that darkness just brings this, this uh, fear that is built in. Now, for the Egyptians, it went much deeper than this. And so the Lord brings the ninth plague upon the Egyptians. And it seems like one that just is, it's like really darkness. This, is, this lack of light is really this terrifying sort of uh, plague that would happen. I mean, the other ones that we've seen previously are, are quite obviously gross. You know, we have uh, water turning to blood. We have frogs. We have gnats and flies everywhere. There's great hailstones that are destroying crops and animals. There's uh, people with boils and just all of these just nasty things. But this one is just no light. It's just complete darkness. It doesn't seem like it would be like the climax, the natural attack that would happen. But here uh, it goes a bit deeper. And you can see that in the text. We see this, it goes deeper on a couple levels. First, on just that innate level of uh, uh, fear and, and darkness. We read in verse 21 the description that the Lord brings to Moses of how he should describe this to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Down in verse 22, it says that Moses did these things, and the description is that it is a pitch darkness over the land of Egypt. This is a deep and total darkness. And this extended all over the entire land of Egypt. It covered the complete nation. The rule and reign of Pharaoh was completely snuffed out. By darkness. Now, darkness can be a terrible thing. It, you know, we think, okay, this is maybe the equivalent of like it was night for three days. But that's not what's being said here. This is a deep and total darkness. And psychologists and, and different scientists have done uh, different experiments and they've, they've uh, studied what happens when people are exposed to darkness for, for a long time. A long time. An extended exposure to darkness, it often leads to uh, disorientation. It leads to this psychological distress. 
If you've been in this, this um, lack of light, unable to focus or have any, any uh, sense of what's around you, and in, in an extended period of time, this ultimately will lead to a depression and into an insanity that will, will start to happen in the person experiencing this darkness. Now, sometimes we can be in a situation where this has been demonstrated to us and, uh, you know, maybe you were at a, at a different museum or you were out in the wilderness where it was just so dark, no stars, it was, just, it was pretty dark. Maybe you've been put in a place uh, to experience kind of this sensory deprivation before. But imagine staying in these conditions for hours on end. Hours on end. No way to tell whether it was night or day. No, you might fall asleep. Sure, like, you know, you're going to get bored, fall asleep. But then you wake up and then you don't even know what time it is. Like, how long was I sleeping? There's no way to gauge by the sun. You can't look at, you know, a watch. Then they didn't have watches. So, like, they didn't have their sundial or whatever it was that they were using. There was a complete lack of awareness. Now, it's described as a darkness to be felt. This, the words that they use here are uh, to feel around with one's hands or to, to, to feel your way. This is the equivalent, what we're being told here, is not that the, the, the darkness could be felt, that there was this ominous feeling, but these same words are used in the Bible to describe the, act, uh, the actions of a blind person. They literally have no feeling. They, they're, they're not able to, to sense in a visual way. And so they're groping around, they're, they're feeling around because they have zero idea what is happening. Now, of course, there's the, kind of that psychological side, but there's also just the basic threat of darkness. And we don't really have an understanding of what real darkness is like because we live in a kind of an era, a time with uh, light pollution, and we have all, you know, there's lights everywhere. You can't, you can't get away from lights. Even if you go all the way out into uh, the wilderness, if you're in the middle of a barren area, you know, we still have got like satellites overhead that are like shooting light towards the earth, and there's just, there's all sorts of uh, ways that we don't have this similar experience. But to ancient people, in ancient times, darkness was a real threat. They would be unable to operate at night. There would be, there's no electric lighting. And occasionally there would be a cloudless uh, night or a full moon. But most of the time they were on lockdown, complete lockdown uh, with their nighttime activities. There would be no illumination for uh, their paths in the darkness. And so travel was restricted. Uh, and if you left the path, it could end in death. You were under threat of uh, animals, you were under landscapes, you could, you know, fall into a ravine or into a cliff, into a pit. You could uh, face even the threat of other humans who were out in criminal activities. There were thieves that would operate in the dark, waiting, lying there uh, in wait for people to come along. And so ancient cities at night, they would just straight up close up the whole city. All the gates would be closed because the roads in and out would either let in uh, people with nefarious purposes or not. And so they would completely lock down the cities. The gates would be closed. The markets would be uh, wrapped up. Shops would close down. Houses would be on lockdown. 
And so there was this practical sense where darkness was a threat. But to the Egyptians, there was an even, even bigger threat. There was the, the symbolism of darkness. And so uh, it was a chaotic uh, source. What they, what they, they thought that darkness was, was just this agent of chaos. It was seen as the enemy of safety and th- all that was good. Now, the Bible likewise speaks of darkness in this way, uh, talking about error and sin. It talks about darkness being uh, a um, descriptor of rebellion, death. In Proverbs uh, 14, or excuse me, Proverbs 4, verse 19, we see that the description is the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. This rebellion, this action of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In 1 John 1, disobedience to God is, is uh, compared to darkness. It, it, it's, it says, if we, have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so there's some uh, idea with the ancients about darkness being this symbol. But uh, as we said, for the Egyptians, it would mean much more. Darkness would not only uh, be something for the Egyptians to fear as a result of the practical nature of it, it would not only be something to fear from this psychological perspective, but it would bring fear to the Egyptians because the primary uh, worship of the the primary uh, object of worship for the Egyptians was the sun. The sun was central in their worship. So this is the attack against the solar deities of Egypt. I'm going to give you uh, four of them real quick. This is the attack against the Egyptian sun gods. The first one, Horus. This is often portrayed as this falcon-headed god. I'm sure you've seen him. There's a He's on like these commercials right now. I forget for, for what, what it's for, but you'll see him if you've seen any commercials recently online or um, on TV. They have, they've got this one where like Horus is randomly showing up. Uh, but he's this falcon-headed god, and it is said that uh, Horus's right eye is the sun, and he is uh, called the god of the sunrise. So he would be responsible for that first portion of the day, the second god is this god Aten, A-T-E-N. He's symbolized by the sun disk or this round kind of uh, object that looks like the sun that's often uh, on the uh, headdress of many of the other gods. And, and Egyptian tombs uh, have, have been found. Archaeologists and Egyptologists have, have found uh, tombs listing the principles of worship for this god, Aten. And one of the principles of this god specifically says that nighttime is a time to fear. Like that is one of the specific things that they say. There's this great fear rooted there. And this god, Aten, is the god of uh, the round midday sun, symbolized by that sun disk. Uh, There was another one, uh, Atum, A-T-U-M, it's a little bit different there. He's the god of the sunset. But the main one is this god, Ra. I'm sure you've heard of this god, Ra, before. He is the god of the sun. He's considered king of the gods. And in Egyptian culture, Ra was worshipped as the creator god. He is the one who uh, was supposed to bring this life. 
In fact, in their culture, they uh, attributed these words to as being spoken by Ra. This God, Ra, is supposed to have said, I am the great God who came into being of himself. He who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. So he's like, I'm the master God, like I'm the, the, the God of all gods. If you are going to attribute all power and authority to one, this is the one. And likewise, the, the Egyptians did believe that. They worshipped this God as their creator. And they would sing these uh, hymns. We've, we've covered a couple of them to the sun gods. But the, here's one of them that they would sing to him, describing their worship of him. They would say of this God, Ra, there is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, and you alone all people, herds, and flocks, all on the earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings. So there's this, this thought that th- among the Egyptians that this God is the creator God. He is the one who, who rules and reigns over all the gods, the king of the gods. He is the one uh, who says of himself, I have no opponent among the gods. No one can, is my equal. But more than that, Pharaoh... The leader of Egypt is regarded as this incarnation of Ra, the personal embodiment of the sun god. And so because of this, Egypt's king was Egypt's god. We've said this before. And he was was viewed in the eyes of the Egyptians as an object of worship. And so the Egyptians would give great... um, they would give great worship to him. They would uh, see that Pharaoh was supposed to be this majestic, eternal figure. And he was viewed in their mind as the illuminator because he was connected to this incarnation of the sun god. They would ask him to illuminate the land. It was, uh, this was the, um, the kind of the final attack here against this god who was seen as the one who is the king of the gods, the highest god, and the one who uh, is supposed to uh, raise the sun. And they would pray to the Pharaoh sometimes, and this is what they would say, Attend to me, O rising sun that illuminates the two lands with his comeliness. O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. Thy nature is like unto thy father Ra who arises in the heaven. So it's, it's in their minds, it's this God Ra and the Pharaoh who work together, who dispel darkness. It's their specific job to remove the, the dark in the land. Now here... In Egypt, this is the straight-up description that we find in Romans 1. Romans 1 describes the exchange that takes place when mankind fails to recognize the God of Israel, our Creator God, as the one true God. And it says there, when people fail to do that, that they make this exchange and instead of worshiping the creator God, they worship the creation as God. They worship the creation as God. And because of that, God gives them over to their own desires there. And that's really what's happening here with Pharaoh. There's this exchange going on 
where the people are worshiping uh, Pharaoh as the creator. He's, he's simply creation. He's not the creator. They were worshiping a mortal man as a mortal God. And so Pharaoh, he claims divinity. He thinks that he is a God. The people think that he is a God. And he claims God's glory for himself. He exalts himself. And he says that he's taking on God's own character, his attributes that would be given to God. It's our God who raises the sun, who has put the sun in its place and set it on its course. It's our God that sustains life. And this, this man, Pharaoh, is claiming that he is the one who causes these things to happen. And so for the God of Israel to bring a judgment of darkness on Egypt, it would be a clear and powerful sign against the gods of Egypt, against their greatest fears, against the claims of Pharaoh and their God who they uh, was, was said of, who was the king of the gods. This is the great attack upon the sun gods. And so this attack, this plague, is executed. We find the description in verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now this plague of darkness, it lasted for three days, and it would seem that they would feel this, this darkness. They would, they would experience this darkness uh, for such a great time before it would come to an end. And because they were in this for three days, there were great ramifications. Their food chain, they probably started to panic a little bit about that. They, don't, they didn't know that it was going to end in three days. But... Plants need light, right? We have the process of like photosynthesis. And so if there's no plants and uh, the animals can't find the plants, then like the animals will die off and if the animals die off and, the, and there's no plants and no animals, then people are going to start to die off because they have no food. Like this is going downhill pretty quick after a while. No one's even able to leave their house because they have zero idea where they're going. You don't want to go wander out there. Uh, there's no travel, no interactions. Um, there's, it was just a great... Uh, and sweeping plague that brought to reality what it's like without the light. Now, by contrast, we see that the people of Israel had light where they lived, right? This is, if you were there, this had to be like the weirdest thing to see. I don't even, if you were like the children of Israel and you were hanging out in your camp and you were like looking out and all of a sudden it was like dark on one specific border, like that just had to be like so weird. I, I can't even imagine what that was like. But what a joy it is to see the Lord providing for his people. Israel had light where they lived. Now, I want you to take note that they didn't have like kind of this eternal, like they, they didn't have constant light. They just had their regular schedule. They had day and night where they lived. They were on their regular schedule. The plague was not nighttime. Okay, the plague was not night; it was darkness. It, it, there's a difference here. It's, so, 
what is being said here is like this isn't some like crazy massive solar eclipse where it was just darkness or it was just nighttime for three days. This is darkness that's being brought about. And what's happening here is this is a bit of a creation reversal. This has kind of been the, the case with all of the plagues where uh, everything that God has created is kind of starting to come apart backwards in the way that he had originally ordained it. And what's being said here is that it's God who sustains the universe. It is God who is the one uh, who sustains the children of Israel, his people. And the light shines on the people of God. It's sourced from the creator God, the God of Israel. And his light shines forth onto his covenant people. He sustains them. He provides for them. There's a clear contrast that's being drawn here. Now, for the Egyptians, ultimately we see God's faithfulness in the light that the children of Israel experience. And in a sense, this is a very literal, a very literal description of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Speaking of the people who he has made a covenant with, who belong to him, who trust in Jesus for salvation, he describes his people this way, saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right, this is really, in a, in, a, in a real literal sense, this is what's kind of happening here. The children of Israel are there. They're just living their lives. They're not doing anything differently other than just being faithful to acknowledge God as their creator. They're being faithful to acknowledge that they belong to him. They're not doing anything special. They're just living their lives in a God-glorifying way by honoring him as the creator. Now, we need to hear this because this is how God uses the children of Israel in contrast to the Egyptians. They're in darkness and there's this great testimony of who they are and who they belong to. They didn't do anything to attain this light. It's just that they are in relationship with God. And so likewise, Jesus' words kind of echo in our, in our mind. They echo in our heart as he tells us that you are the light of the world. Friends, we need to be encouraged that when we are out in the darkness of the world, we need to be reminded that we are, when we're out in our sphere of influence, in our workplace, uh, at, at, at our jobs, when, when we are in these different areas that the Lord has placed us in, you don't have to do anything special. You just have to be in relationship with Jesus and be faithful and be submitted to him. And he is going to make you shine brightly. He is going to use you as a stark flame in a dark area. He will use you. All you have to do is just continue on being faithful. You don't have to like all of a sudden get super smart and be able to like win arguments. You don't need to do anything crazy. It's just know and enjoy Jesus. And he's going to set you on fire and let you burn for everybody to see. It's, it's really as simple as that. 
The brighter you burn is related to how much you know and enjoy Jesus. This joy that is deep within our hearts that, that we have. This is described for us in 2 Corinthians first, uh, chapter 4. Paul speaking, he says, We proclaim not ourselves, not our own identity. That's what the world is all about, proclaiming ourselves, our identity. Here's who I am. But Paul says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's this, it's this idea that Jesus shines forth out of us. God has put us into a unique place to be able to communicate who he is just through our faithful living. Not through how smart we are, how clever we are, how smooth our interactions are, just knowing and enjoying Jesus. Now we see the response of Pharaoh in verse 24. Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your little ones, also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Now, Moses, he wouldn't have been able to be located in the midst of this darkness. Uh, so Pharaoh calls him after the plague ends. There's no way for this is to come to a, an end or for uh, Pharaoh to summon Moses and be like, hey, like, I'm done with this. Like, let's make this stop. This the plague kind of comes to this natural ending after God ordains it to end. And then Pharaoh's like, let's get Moses in here. We got to deal with this. And so he responds to the plagues this time after calling Moses, telling Moses, go and serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you and only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Now, this is a, a great revelation for us about Pharaoh's heart and his attitude. If you notice in this, in this just quick statement, in his action, in the things that he's communicating here, Pharaoh is communicating to us his theology, what he believes and knows about God. He knows the name of God, right? When we started this, uh, when Moses started this, Pharaoh's thought was like, who, who is the Lord your God? Like, who is this guy? I'm not, I'm, he's challenging even who God is. Now he knows the name of God, he knows the command of God, what God wants. He knows the power and authority of God. And he knows the purpose for the freedom of the children of Israel, that they would be uh, made free. He says, go serve the Lord. He's like, the, the reason that, that this keeps happening is because God wants you to do something. I know who he is. I know who he's called you to be. I know what he wants you to do. And I know that you need to go and worship him instead of serving me. You need to go serve him instead of serving me. And he has all this knowledge about God, but he doesn't know God still. This is, this is similar to the description that we have in the book of James about the demons. It says that they believe God, that they know who he is, and, and they tremble. They have more correct theology, they have more correct developed ideas about who God is than you and I. They operate in that spiritual realm, but yet they do not submit to him. And that's the difference between Moses 
and Pharaoh, right? Moses, when he came to the burning bush, he didn't really like have this idea like who God was and this whole thing where God's like, here's who I am. Here's what I want you to do. I'm calling you to do this thing. They had kind of a similar beginning where God was laying out his plan. Here's what I want you to do. But the difference is that Moses submitted to it and he said, I'm rightly recognizing that you are the creator God. You are the one who has called me, who sustained me. And he is walking faithfully with the Lord, whereas Pharaoh has the same knowledge, but yet does not act upon that. Now, Pharaoh, he refuses to give up his power, his rule and reign. He concedes that the kids can go, take the little ones with you, but he says, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Well, what he's doing here is he's trying to deal with God on his own terms. God has already said what he wants to happen, he, what he's called the children of Israel to do. But Pharaoh says, no, this is going to happen on my own terms, in my own way, and my specific uh, desires are going to be held up. Pharaoh wants to stay in control. And so he only did what he had to do. Like This is like the absolute bare minimum. And a lot of times I think that we're tempted to fall into that category where we want to kind of, we end up doing what God wants us to do, but like we'll just do the absolute bare minimum. Like, all right, like I, I will just get as close to I can as like uh, checking off the box that, you know, it seems like God wants me to check off. We'll, we'll go to just the, the most shallow amount of effort. But when we put forth the effort, when we obey what God has called us to do with a cheerful and joyful attitude, you can know that there are great blessings there because God has greater desires for you than you have for yourself. You want specific things that you think are good for you. God has things that are way better for you and me. He's got huge blessings, greater ideas that we could ever have. And often in our own selfishness, we stop short of what God really wants to do and really what he wants to give us and how he wants to work in our lives. He wants to provide at a greater level, a deeper level than we often uh, allow him to because of our own selfishness. So we have to be aware of this. Uh, much like Pharaoh operates here, we want to operate like Moses in obedience. And that's what Moses does. He responds, he says in verse 25, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So he says, we got to take our, our flocks. We have to take our herds because we need them for our sacrifices and burnt offerings. Our livestock also must go with us, verse 26. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve, <clears throat> to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So Moses, he rightly says, we need the resources that God has told us uh, to bring. We need to bring these things with us. And we don't even know what God's going to call us to use in our obedience. And then verse 29 or 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, 
Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not ever see your face again. So in a bit of a kind of a sad statement here, Pharaoh, he really cuts off his only connection to salvation. He has put Moses out and even issued this statement that if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. You will die. And Moses, he kind of comes back like, all right, I think he kind of is a little bit relieved, like, all right, good, I don't have to go back there anymore. Slash, like, uh, seeing that maybe this is the end of these plagues that God is sending upon uh, the land of Egypt. Maybe their, their salvation is near, that they will be able to be uh, freed. But Pharaoh, he is stuck in his ways, and he wants to sit in his darkness. He wants to stay with that hardened heart. He wants to be uh, just dwelling in that, in that land of darkness rather than coming to be a part of the covenant people. And the only way to escape the only way to be freed from the darkness is to become a part of the covenant people, to, to be like the children of Israel in relationship with God. And the only way to have that is to trust in Jesus Christ, who Scripture tells us is the light of the world, that he himself is the light of the world. In fact, it was foretold of Jesus that he would bring this light, that he would remove our darkness, much like the children of Israel are removed from darkness through their covenant relationship. And this passage is quoted uh, from Isaiah 9. It's foretold in that passage that, you know, we often read at Christmas, for unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, a wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty God. In, in Isaiah 9, this, is, this starts off the book, or the, the chapter in verse 2, but it's quoted in Matthew 4, verse 16, of Jesus' ministry. Speaking this way, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Like the Egyptians, all of mankind is under this darkness, under the region and shadow of death. But Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4 tell us that there has been a great light that has come. A light has dawned. And that speaks of the incarnation of Christ, his uh, God becoming a man what we celebrate at Christmas. And in order to be, to be that light, to bring us light, Jesus had to enter into our darkness. We were under the judgment of God. And he came to live a perfect life in our place. Being under the judgment of God, being in darkness, Jesus faced that for us. 
when he went to the cross, was crucified in our place, paying the punishment for our sin, Luke 23 describes the scene this way. About the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's like the middle, middle of the day. It's 12 to 3. The brightest part of the day, the hottest part of the day, darkness. The darkness is significant, as we've said, symbolizing our sin and shame as Jesus bore that upon the cross. The darkness symbolizes God's judgment, just like it did for the Egyptians. Here, the darkness is brought forth at the cross. Jesus bears our punishment at the cross. He pays the price for our sin. He enters into our darkness. And like the Egyptians who experienced judgment, that judgment of darkness for three days, Jesus goes into the grave for three days of darkness, only to be resurrected after three days. For our justification and for God's glory, Jesus paid that price, entered into our darkness, but then came out on the other side conquering so that God's name might be known and that like the Egyptian God, Ra, who said that there's, there's no one who is comparable to me, there was no one who was my opponent, the God of Israel steps forth and says, oh, I will destroy you. I can conquer sin, I can conquer Satan, I can conquer death, and I can remove the darkness through my light that I have put into the world. He's created his new community through Christ. And it is God who raises Christ Jesus from the dead, and he defeats all of his enemies. Jesus describes this work in his own way. In John chapter 3, Verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These works have been carried out in God through the light of Jesus. When we come to him, he's calling us to leave the darkness and to give our hearts to him. And we end with this. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8. He ends, or he, he speaks, he says this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world who promises us that when we come to him, when we follow him, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. When we belong to him, we are known by the light of the cross. 
And the cross gives us an identity. We're no longer anonymous, but we're, we're brought into the light. And we are, uh, it shines upon us, showing that we belong to the community of God, much like the children of Israel uh, were just being uh, illuminated by their covenant with God. Separate from Egypt, in relationship with God, known by him, identified by that relationship. This is what he's called us into. So that we might not wander around as blind men and women, unaware of the dangers of this world, unaware of the dangers of sin, but recognizing that he has conquered, he has defeated, he has made it possible for us to join with him, to be united with him. And so as he is the light of the world, he has told us that we likewise are like these cities that are on a hill, that we are like flames that are meant to illuminate a world. And so you and I, as we come to our time of response, let's ask the Lord to work in our hearts, to help us to just be simple, Jesus-loving, God-honoring people. And that in our obedience, in our radical obedience to him, and yes, it is radical to obey the Lord because it's so countercultural. It's so self-denying. In our radical obedience to him, we want Jesus to shine forth. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in our hearts this morning. Lord, we're thankful that you have illuminated our hearts through Christ, that you have given us new life, that you have put Jesus on display. And so we want to lift up the name of Jesus this morning, proclaiming Christ as our Lord and King. Lord, we want to be in relationship with you, connected to you as you are our covenant God. We're thankful that you have made us your own. And Lord, we want to shine forth just through simplicity of knowing you. We're thankful, Lord, that you have called us to do that. We're thankful that you have brought us into relationship with you through Christ. We're thankful that you have sealed us by your Holy Spirit and that you enable us and empower us to obey you. And so, Lord, we want to draw near to you now and respond to who you are, the rightful King, Lord of all. We love you. Amen.